If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash code assistant. IBM, let's create. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's the groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. This Father's Day, power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. Find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. Guess what, Will? What's that, Mango? So I know everyone loves to make that joke, like, it's 2018, where's my jetpack? Like, everyone was promised a jetpack. Yeah, or where's my flying car? I'm still curious where my flying car is. <laughs> exactly, but the stuff I want is the stuff we were actually reported on. I, I mean, in the last 15 years, we've talked about things like uh, contact lenses you wear at night that would adjust your eyes so that you take them out in the mornings and have perfect vision through the day, which is cool, right? Or yeah. uh, I remember writing about peanut butter and jelly slices, so you could just slap those on bread for faster sandwiches. I mean, I was with you. I'm not sure about the peanut butter thing. I feel like spreading peanut butter <laughs> on bread doesn't take that much time or effort. I know, but I can't outsource that job to my kids. Plus, you know, when I'm rushing out in the mornings, I, I don't want to leave like a dirty butter knife in the sink, which I realize as I'm saying it is like a very minor gripe. But that's the kind of future I want to live in. I mean, that's my favorite part about a PB&J is actually licking the peanut butter <laughs> off the knife after that. But Anyway, I actually looked up these newspaper predictions for the future for this episode, and there's this article from, uh, I think it was 1900 in the Boston Globe, and the author makes all these predictions about the year 2000. No pollution, moving sidewalks, and for some reason he thinks there will be an AM and PM newspaper, which, <laughs> I mean, I guess there is if you consider the round-the-clock reporting on the internet, but the thing I loved about it was that he refused to make any predictions about the weather because he assumed that, you know, a hundred years from then, it would still be impossible to predict. Oh, uh, that's genius. And uh, speaking of genius, we've actually got Zach Wienersmith on the program today. He's the co-author of the book Soonish, and it's basically this super fun textbook of the future. It's almost more a guide to the hurdles we'll face, plus a status check on how things like asteroid mining or nuclear-powered toasters are coming along. And... I'm already doing too much talking. Let's get him on the line.
Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Hatikater. And sitting behind the soundproof glass, playing with his Doc Brown bobblehead. <laughs> I didn't know Tristan was a Back to the Future fan. Well, apparently he only likes the first and the third one. So so do not talk to him about Back to the Future Part 2. He gets really <laughs> emotional, but, but that's our pal and producer, Tristan McNeil. Now, I want to jump right into this interview. Today, we've got a very special guest, a super funny cartoonist and the co-author of the book Soonish, 10 Emerging Technologies That'll Improve and or Ruin Everything. Zach Wiener-Smith, welcome to Part-Time Genius. Thanks for having me. Now, now, Zach, we should mention up front that this is a book that you wrote with your super smart wife, Kelly, who's a professor at Rice. Can, can you remind us what she what she does at Rice? Her research pertains to parasites that manipulate host behavior. So if your audience is familiar with any of this, they've probably heard of toxoplasmosis, which perhaps manipulates a lot of human behavior. Through cats, right? In cat litter. Yes. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> Lots of us have it. Um, uh, I actually don't know. I do. I probably do. I grew up with cats. Um, but yeah, <laughs> so, so there, there are a number uh, of claims about it. Like it, it, it um, reduces reaction time, which you can kind of understand if, if you wanted to have, if you were the parasite and you were trying to make a mouse uh, get eaten by a cat. Uh, it, it makes mice less averse to the smell of cat urine. Um, there, there are some there's some studies. Uh, Kelly knows this stuff better than I do, but my understanding from talking to her is there, there's some studies that try to correlate this stuff to humans, and they're very tantalizing. Uh, but obviously, you're you're not allowed to like get a hundred humans and then put parasites in them and see what changes. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Kelly's at work right now doing exactly that. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't talk about that. Uh, <laughs> so the, this book Soonish is so fun and funny and especially the Nota Bene sections, which, which are just so great. But uh, can, can you tell us why you chose to write a book about the future and, and why you concentrated on the 10 subject areas that you did? Sure. Um, so we we're kind of just interested in future stuff. And also we, we both had this thing where we're sort of generally interested in space travel and realize we know really nothing about it. The 10 technologies in particular we got into uh, it was sort of a process of cutting away. We actually started with a list of 50, and some got cut because they turned out to just not really exist. We thought maybe it was a thing, and it's not a thing. <laughs> uh, so we, we had to give an example of that. Like we we thought, hey, what if is anyone working on like perfected economic forecasting or something like that? Like, is there going to be some future like you know super computer device? That, I mean, th- there are things that kind of do related stuff, but no one's trying to sort of forecast like the weather gets forecast. Right. Sure. So, yeah, it was sort of a, a winnowing away to stuff that we thought we could do properly in five to 10,000 words and which was interesting. And also stuff that we thought maybe people hadn't heard about. Um, that's not true of every chapter, but stuff like programmable matter, I think most people have not heard of. Um, uh, maybe synthetic biology, most people have not heard of. And I think probably most of the like, cheap access to space technology stuff is not with the exception of a couple things, it's probably not on people's radar. Yeah, and we, we definitely want to ask you about a few of those things. I, I will say one of our favorite sections was – the note on the end for humanity and, you know, and why you and Kelly are, are pessimistic about betting on humans if robots ever revolt. So can, can you tell us a little bit about Promobot and Gaia specifically? Sure. Uh, Promobot, we kind of just throw in for cutesies. Uh, Promobot <laughs> is, this, is this Russian robot, or maybe maybe to sort of set the table, uh, is this Russian robot designed to assist people, um, like to assist the elderly. So the, the idea is basically elder care. There aren't a lot of people who want to do it. It's not well-paid work. It would be really nice if you could have a machine to do a lot of the basic tasks um, of elder care. Uh, and so there's this robot a Russian company is working on called Promobot. I think, I'm, I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. Uh, but anyway, it... Uh, 
tried to escape <laughs> <laughs> from the facility they were working at. Apparently twice and one time it escaped and like died in traffic, um, which I presumably wasn't like a choice. Guy is this robot made by Serena Booth, who's uh, was doing an undergraduate thesis at Harvard. And the basic deal on Gaia is it's just a dumb remote control robot, uh, and she would secretly control it so to an onlooker it would look like it. it you know, for all you know, it was like a startup autonomous robot deal because uh, it's it's Boston after all. <laughs> and uh, the robot would go up to students uh, near their dorm rooms or their dorms and say, will you let me into the building, which is, which is a, a, a big no-no. Uh, it, it's especially a big no-no in Harvard because Harvard is you know world famous. So there are like lots of looky-loos and weirdos trying to get into buildings. Um, and actually, so to speak, fortuitously, around the time of the experiment, there apparently have been bomb threats. Oh, wow. Um, and so I, I forget the, the numbers are in the book, but it's something like 20% of students will let people in, uh, which is, you know, not not a high number. Although remember, it's Harvard students, so they're supposed to be ultra geniuses. Um, <laughs> and, and, and furthermore, if you're trying to cause some trouble and you only have to try it five times, uh, you know, that's not, that's not, <laughs> that's not great odds. Uh, but but the, the really interesting thing, the, the, there are a number of permutations of this, and there's a different set of experiments by another researcher. But the really uh, the one we were really interested in was she did an experiment where all she did was load the robot with cookies. Uh, like she just got a box of cookies, put them on top, and the robot would come up to a student and say, I'm here delivering cookies, will you let me in? And it shot up to the exact numbers in the book, but it's something like three quarters of students would let that robot in. Um, so, I, I mean, it, it, it's sort of a funny experiment, um, but but th there is a sort of serious side to it, which is the way we like to say it in talks we've given on this is essentially if you look at movies we humans make about what it would take to fool us into obeying the robots, the robots always have to really put out. You know right. what I mean? <laughs> they have to like build an exoskeleton with like stem cells, or I don't know what. Like the Terminator looks exactly like a human, except for it's got a metal endoskeleton and this and that. Or, or like they build a T one thousand, like this impossible, complicated robot just to like look kind of human. And it just turns out we'll we'll like obey a trash can with cookies. Just some cookies, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, so, so it is. It is kind of a, I don't know. I suppose ominous, um, or it, it, I think if you think about it, hard it probably should cause you to rethink your relationship to machines a bit. Like and cookies, this, right? <laughs> yeah, and, well, and cookies. It is kind of analogous to something like um, I think a lot of us have been rethinking our relationship with Facebook, right? Which right. is kind of the same deal. It's giving us something cool. Uh, which is the, the sort of proverbial cookies, and in exchange, it's taking something. Or I know, for example, like I, I used to second guess my GPS, and I discovered literally every time I did that, I was wrong. Um, <laughs> the, the machine was always right. And so now I, I will obey the GPS, even if it appears to be doing something stupid to me. Um, <laughs> I've, I've completely gotten rid of my, my like regard for self as it, as it pertains to mapping. <laughs> and it is a little ominous. I, I mean, you don't even have to posit sentient machines to be scared. It could be just some bad actor. Well, uh, let's, or, let's, let's yeah. talk a little bit about the positive applications because I, I'm fascinated <laughs> with that too. Yes, so, yes. so sticking with robots and programmable matter, uh, I, I'm really fascinated by the benefits in medicine and then also mm -hmm. in the home that you talk about. Could you uh, explain a little of that to our listeners? So the basic idea with programmable matter is something like, you know, the neat thing about a computer is a computer is not just one machine. It's potentially infinite machines. Your computer does almost everything for you. That's why your phone can be a radio and a clock and a you know, well, phone, too, mm -hmm. occasionally. Um, <laughs> 
And the idea with programmable matter is to be able to do that sort of thing, but with stuff. So it's like if you had a sort of object that could be a cup or it could be a phone or it could be anything else. The the way we like to describe it is it's like having the T-1000, only it's not trying to kill you. So obviously that level of stuff, the sort of like shimmering goo that turns into whatever, that's really far off if it's even possible. Uh, But there are lots of intermediate versions. And so one idea is what's called origami robots. And so if you think about it in terms of universality, Origami is basically this thing where you take a piece of paper and the piece of paper can be almost infinite things. It might be literally infinite. I don't, I don't know the math on it, um, but it's something like infinite, right? You can get many different shapes out of one thing and many of them could be useful. And so one idea is you could um, do origami robots that do stuff in the body, right? Um, so the, the the really cool version of this that we were interested in was done by a woman named Daniela Roos or done by her lab at uh, MIT. And the basic idea was you have a pill you swallow in the pill. The pill is made of ice, but in it is this little, um, it's actually a piece of sausage casing with some wiring in it so that it can fold along pre-programmed axes. Uh, and uh, you swallow it, it melts while it's in your gut. And now there's this little machine that you can manipulate remotely uh, that can fold in different configurations. Uh, and, and, you know, in a sort of like future optimal version, it's it's completely self-powered and can do all sorts of cool stuff. In this version, it's, it's I think, remote controlled by um, like a, a magnet you have outside the body. But anyway, the reason why would you want this? Why, would, why do you want an origami robot in your gut? Well, it turns out uh, in America, 3,500 of us every year swallow a watch battery, which then gets lodged in our guts. Um, and and I, I, I hasten to add, that's just the people who a report and, and who B didn't pass it naturally. So there's like a, like a shockingly high number of people swallowing watch batteries. I don't know why. Presumably most of them are children, but I, we didn't get that stat. Um, so, uh, so basically, but so the idea is you just have this little machine that walks in, kind of grabs the battery and then the whole thing passes right out as nature intended. This one's about the size of a postage stamp. You can imagine ones that are much more miniaturized. Um, and why that would be exciting is something like this. So, you know, if you have a headache, it's not like your whole body hurts, but you take a pill that uh, lowers the inflammation in your whole body, right? So so aspirin is good whether you have like a banged up knee or a headache or what have you. Uh, ideally, it'd be nice if you could get machines to deliver the medicine to a specific location. And, you know, an aspirin, it's not a big deal, but if you imagine like really toxic like chemo medication, it would be really nice if you could dose only the necessary areas. Um, so that's a sort of very futuristic application of this sort of thing, Um it could be really interesting. Uh, I think you asked about programmable homes. I, 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 I'm trying to remember. What, I think there were a couple of different versions I, of that we talked about. I think the thing I was fascinated most about was just that because uh, I, I lived in a tiny apartment in Brooklyn and the fact that, you know, your whole room could transform so quickly and furniture can assemble yeah. and re- unassemble. And like that, that's all just amazing to me. Yeah, I, I, it's funny because so your programmable matter, we call it that. It actually goes under a lot of different names. But but yeah, so there, there's a lot more sort of you know, macro stuff. It's really interesting. Um, there, there's, there's a group we talked about called Roombots and Roombots are basically these cube like things about the size of a baseball. Uh, it's, it's sort of a cross between a cube and a, and a circle. So, so it can sort of roll around and, and then it's just that. And then it has a little sensing ability and it can dock with other versions of itself. And what's neat is then they can self assemble into like chairs or tables or whatever. So if you really wanted to be, you know, Swedish about your, uh, your room, you could just have a pile of these robots in the corner and you could say assemble into like my kitchen setup or whatever, whatever you need. <laughs> of course, they're very slow right now, but you can imagine a, a sort of future <laughs> where, where it doesn't take, you know, 10 hours. Did I, did I, I don't remember if we put this in the book, but they actually people uh, worked on systems of robots that mate with each other uh, to produce like um, That's offspring. terrifying. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> it's, like, it's like implementing genetic algorithms in the real world. Dogs everywhere are shivering just at this idea. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> the problem is it's really slow. And I, again, I don't remember if we mentioned this, this in the book, but there was one group that actually did basically like machine breeding via a 3D printer, if that makes sense. Like you have two machines yeah. they quote unquote agree to mate uh, in whatever sense machines do that. And then you have a 3D printer to sort of print the outcome. Uh, and wow. what was funny is for whatever reason, the group decided to have the robots kind of rub on each other when they were made like completely needlessly. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I don't know. It just gets lonely working on these projects. Yeah, I was going to say, I think these people are kind of fulfilling other needs as they're coming up with these (laughs) ideas. But but, but speaking of of multiple robots, what about these robotic swarms and and robots that Mm -hmm. work in, in teams? Can you talk a little bit about the applications there? Yeah, uh, robot swarm. So uh, we, we talk about them in two contexts. So a, robot swarm is what it sounds like. It's a swarm of robots. And you, you might ask yourself, why, why would I want that instead of one robot or one large robot? So there are a couple of contexts where it might be valuable. One is, suppose you um, have some kind of disaster area. Say there's like a nuclear accident or there's just a lot of rubble, something where you wouldn't want to send people in. Um, with a swarm of robots, you can have a lot of small cameras sort of going all over the place to explore an area. And also, if one breaks, it's less of a big deal. Yeah. In addition, um, you can design them. There's some groups that work on this. You can design them so they can do stuff with each other, so they can, they're can they modular. So, you know, there's one group we looked at where they had this this clever trick where I suppose you have – you can imagine a little tiny robot about the size of your fist that's rolling around, and it comes across a chasm it can't cross on its own. It then signals, like, five other of the same robot to dock with it to form a sort of train and now it can go over or for example if it has to cross like on a, a narrow passage uh, you can configure so that it has the, the sort of robot equivalent of holding two arms out to the sides mm-hmm. uh and so it can balance the stuff like that so you can imagine you, it, for, with some fairly simple algorithms it can navigate all sorts of terrain more effectively um the other context in which we talk about robot swarms is we have a chapter on what's called robotic construction, which is, again, what it sounds like. It's machines sort of taking over the work of construction workers or even extending it. The opposite of a swarm would be this this one idea, which is to have a sort of giant gantry, like basically a huge 3D printer that kind of prints out a house, um, which is cool, but like might be limited, say, if you wanted to build in New York. That's a little tough to do. A robot swarm would be building upward, kind of like termites do, right? So you have like a lot of little robots delivering small amounts of material um, and, and sort of coordinating with each other. Huh. Uh, and so that, that would be a sort of a, an interesting different way to do it, um, uh, like like pretty revolutionary uh, for better and worse. Um, but but to me, that, that seemed kind of like plausible because the idea then is, is essentially what might happen is like a, a, a semi shows up and it's loaded with, you know, a thousand or whatever little robots and they come out and they slowly assemble your house kind of like a team of ants. Um, and again, it has the same virtue of if one breaks or something screwy, it doesn't matter. It's, it's just like an ant colony. If one dies, it's no big deal. And they can do this trick of building up structures. They're very simple. They're not ready for prime time. They can't put in things like plumbing, et cetera. But it's really cool to see it done. They can build structures and they can even climb up the structures to add more concrete. It's a really cool potential future paradigm for construction. Wow. I kind of want to see this. Are, are there videos of this? Uh... There totally are. Uh, if you, if you have a section in the robot construction chapter about swarm robotics, there are a bunch of different ways it might go down if this is the paradigm we choose. I don't, there's, there's also reasons that it might not work. You know, we talked about a guy named Justin Werfel, who's sort of a friend of ours now, who um, works, he studies termites to kind of see how they do it because the neat thing with termites is no particular termite knows what the structure is supposed to look like, right? right? There's no, there's yeah. no blueprint system. They, they have some sort of algorithm they're running um, or, or however you want to say it. Um, and and so it, it's sort of fascinating. They, I, I learned a new word. I don't remember if we put it in the book, but the word is stigmergy, which is embedding <laughs> information in an environment, which is really interesting because you say, how do termites do this? Well, one thing they can do is they can leave a chemical trail that says something like, don't go here or don't build here. Um, I, I don't actually know what, you know, literally every termite 
chemical trail does, but they can leave chemical trails. And it's interesting because they don't even know, have to know what the trail does, right? They're just acting out part of this process of building. It's sort of fascinating. Now, there's so much more we want to ask you about from the future of pogo sticks to the importance of breathing through both your nostrils. But before we get to that, let's take a quick break. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Thinking of popping the question? Diamonds Direct has an offer you can't miss. This month only, buy a natural diamond engagement ring of 1 carat plus and receive a free natural 1 carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. No one provides education, selection, and value like Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet from your friends at Diamonds Direct won't last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. So I, I want to switch gears a little bit and and talk a little bit about uh, travel to space because yeah. you know th- this week we watched the SpaceX launch and one of the things you talk about in your book is why cheap travel to space will be important. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about why that is and what's the real hindrance right now? And also, can this idea of a giant pogo stick or super gun <laughs> really help us get there? Yes, yes, good. Okay, so first question was why does it matter? I actually I, I want to punt a little on the mattering thing. I actually I feel bad because I've had we've been on economics podcasts and they'll say like so what. What's the economic benefit of space? And I'm like, I just don't know. I don't know if there is one. I'll give you some arguments that might work. There are minerals in space that might be valuable. The question you always have to ask yourself is, would it be cheaper to just dig a big hole on Earth? Sure. And often it probably isn't uh, more valuable. I I really think the value of going to space, you have to be a a bit poetic about it. I I think Carl Sagan wrote a bit about how it just kind of satisfies a fundamental human urge um, to, to explore. And then, you know, an economist uh, I talked to pointed out, well, the, you know, the deal is we don't know. Uh, so there, there could be developments we're not imagining yet um, in these other environments. So who knows? But I, I think we, we just kind of want to do it. Um, so yeah. and, and the basic deal is we can't now, mostly because it's expensive. You know, people will say we don't fund NASA enough. I think there's a good argument there. But NASA is funded about half as much as in the glory days of Apollo and a lot of technology is a lot cheaper. Um, so I, I don't think it comes down to funding. It, it comes down to just the, the general extreme difficulty and expense of going to space. And because it, until very recently, the technology had not developed that much. 
um, because I think it's mostly, you know, it's mostly governmental technology and I'm, I'm not in any way against governmental science research, but there wasn't the that drive to get costs down that you get with, you know, companies like SpaceX that have a, a bottom line. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I, I would say the best argument in favor of cheap space flight is basically that it's awesome. It would be amazing. It would be wonderful. <laughs> uh, you, uh, I, I really think there's no, no stronger argument in favor. And there's also sort of, let's find out what we'll do in space. We don't really know what we're going to do up there. Um, if you want to be a little more cynical, they're, they're incredibly strong military applications um, to space. You know, if you go to ge geosynchronous orbit and you can drop a rocket at space, just like a hunk of metal, say, it's like dropping a nuclear weapon. Um, and it's a nuclear weapon. It's actually worse than a nuclear weapon because it's very hard to stop because um, uh, just, it's just Newton who's throwing the, the piece of metal down at you. It's not you know, a, a little ticklish nuclear warhead um, that, that could be diffused. Uh, um, so um, there, there are tremendous military applications. There are also there are communication satellite applications that's a little less sexy, but it's, you know, important. And so, so those are some arguments. I, I do think if you, if you want to talk about, like, why is it valuable to go to Mars, the only legit argument, I think, is that we want to do it. And it's it sort of, in a way, I mean this seriously, it's, it's sort of a glorified art project. It just sort of satisfies some desire we have. There are two things that are really lousy about taking a rocket to space in most uses. Um, so the, 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 the first thing that's lousy is in in every company but SpaceX, we throw away the rocket. And it's actually pretty close in terms of price point. If you imagine you wanted to fly from London to uh, Los Angeles, uh, and imagine the only way to do that would be you get in the plane and you fly until you're over Los Angeles and then you jump out in a parachute and then the plane crashes into the ocean. <laughs> that is essentially what we do with rockets. These rocket launches, they cost at the very cheapest, like SpaceX rates, you're talking like $60 million. And that's for a pretty ho-hum mission that's just putting like satellites in, um, in, in low Earth orbit. Um, and, and it's about the same for planes. Like if you had to, if you had to crash the plane every time you went to London, you probably would have to pay a million dollars a seat, maybe more. So part of why it's so exciting that SpaceX can land part of its rocket, it can't land the whole thing yet, but maybe one day, uh, is that that's the major part of the cost. The, the, the fuel is minimal, right? So we said 60 million, it's generally more than, but, but say 60 million, the cost for fuel is under a million dollars. Uh, I don't know what the cost for like staff is, and we don't know yet what the cost of refurbishment is, or even if SpaceX knows, I don't think they're telling um, yet, uh, but, but it, it's like planes, right? Your plane ticket from London is now, you know, maybe a thousand bucks instead of the million bucks it would be. So if you can do the same for space travel, it's kind of wild, right? So you, as a first approximation, imagine you get the price of all space stuff down by a factor of 10, uh, take any space mission you care about and multiply it by say a factor of two uh, or three, you know? So instead of um, two dudes on the moon, it's four or five dudes uh, or well, and four or five ladies. So that's just awesome. Uh, that's great. I'm, nothing is bad about that. Uh, the, the other thing that's standing in the way with rockets uh, people don't realize this. If you look at a rocket sitting on the pad ready to launch, uh, about 80% of it by mass is propellant. It's fuel and oxidizer. It's the stuff you're going to burn in order to go uh, up sure. and over. Uh, about 16, 17% is, is just the machine itself, like the metal and plastic and silicon that go into, you know, going up. <laughs> uh, and the, the stuff you might call actually going to space is on, on a really low Earth orbit uh, efficient mission is about 3.5%. Right. The little tippy top. It's so it's, it's essentially like you have to launch a skyscraper into space to put the first floor into space. Uh, and uh, which you might imagine is, is, is pretty inefficient. Uh, there, there are also some environmental concerns. But, but in terms of cost, it's pretty dramatic. Right. So as a way to think about it, if you could just get the fuel usage from 80 percent to you know, 76 and a half percent, you've cut the cost in half of any cargo going up. The tricky part is, is rockets are like 
they're pretty optimized to my understanding. Like, you know, it's just, it's the rocket equation. It's, it's pretty Newtonian. It's, it's, there's not a whole lot you can do to make it better. There's some wacky ideas. Um, and I'll get to the pogo stick in a moment. Um, <laughs> but, but, but so, uh, I, I mean, I can, I can get a lot more into that, but, but so like a lot of the proposals for how to get to space without using a rocket are in one way or another, essentially fighting this problem of the idea that most of what you're doing when you go to space is lifting fuel that you're going to burn on your way to space and not stuff that you want to go to space. Right. I, I, I hasten to add to for like Apollo going just to the moon, just to the moon, not very far at all in a solar system sense. That was about 1.5% stuff going to space. Hmm. Um, so the pogo stick. So how might <laughs> you improve? Uh, well, so remember I said uh, only let's say 3% is going to space just for efficiency and math. So that means if you just get 3% more efficiency, you double uh, the amount of cargo, you cut the price in half. So, well, uh, so a big part of the fuel, as you might imagine, is just getting uh, the, 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 like, the initial launch. Because right when you launch, most of what you're lifting is other fuel, right? Um, so if you could spare yourself just a little of that need to, to get that fuel up to speed, you, you could get like the, the, our guy uh, we talked to at NASA uh, said you could get like 1% or 2% more efficiency maybe. So the basic idea, it's a pogo stick, right? rocket up some height, I don't know, let's say 100 feet. You drop it. Uh, it bounces. Now you've got some speed, uh, and off you go to space. Uh, <laughs> and and so I, I, there might be some people who are thinking, I don't see how the physics of this checks out. So the way to think about it is, is just, um, you know, you're imparting some of your energy just by lifting it up and then dropping it. And so it, it's a more efficient use of energy than um, having to burn the fuel in the rocket to move the rocket. Uh, we have we have some sort of analogies for for how to explain that in the book, but um, yeah. Uh, but but the basic idea is, as long as you're burning fuel to lift more fuel, it's bad. Or as, as a simple way to think about it, the best way to fly to space would be if a magic pixie dropped a drop of fuel into the tank every time you needed it. Right. So you'd only be lifting stuff. Um, so the the pogo gets you just a nudge towards that. Um, and uh, at least according to the guy we talked to at NASA, it would work in the sense of, of physics. Uh, whether I, I sometimes I just, wonder. I, I just love that image, though. Like, like a rocket just <laughs> bouncing slowly, getting height off that. It, totally, yeah. It'd be like T minus, you know, one second to pogo drop. Um, <laughs> and, but I, I do wonder if some of the solutions aren't tried because if it went wrong, you'd look like such an idiot. Right. Uh, <laughs> um, so, but yeah, that's, that's the pogo stick method. More with Zach Wienersmith right after this break. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
thinking of popping the question? Diamonds Direct has an offer you can't miss. This month only, buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. No one provides education, selection, and value like Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet from your friends at Diamonds Direct won't last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. One last question for you guys. Your book is so good and it covers so many topics from, you Thank know, you. synthetic biology, 3D printing for food. Like, like there's, there's just so much in there. Asteroid mining, which we didn't even get to, which is really great. But um, but I, I did want to ask you about this one experiment that you guys found on the effects of breathing through one nostril. <laughs> <laughs> Can you yes. guys talk about that? <laughs> uh, yeah. I, if, I, if I remember correctly, there was an acronym. It was like unilateral force nose breathing, something like that. You... you uh, UFNB or something. Anyway, so uh, yeah, so uh, let me set the table a little for that. So we we did the chapter. I think this is in the chapter on augmented reality. And so in the book we have these things called notabenes, which are generally just little tidbits of weirdness we came across that had nothing to do with anything or just didn't fit the chapter, but that we still wanted to write about. And so this one was on uh, noses. And the reason this relates to augmented reality is when you put on an augmented reality helmet, one of the obvious things it has to do is offset the image you see in each eye in order to convey a 3D environment, right? Because, um, of course, in the real world, your eyes are offset from each other. Uh, and so if you actually would, if, if you ha- would have an augmented reality system for the ears, you would have to do the same thing. You have to offset sounds a little, like, so you know something's uh, to your right because you hear sure. the sound from it a little earlier in the right ear. Uh, and so we thought, well, let's say you got two eyes, you got two ears, the only other thing on your face you have two of is your nose. And so can you sort of triangulate with smell? And we realized neither of us had an answer to that. Um, so we started, like, how can we explore this question? And it turned out um, Kelly happened to know a guy um, who worked on snakes. And it's a sort of similar question, why do snakes have forked tongues? And, and it turns out snakes and a number of other species might have the ability to do something like that, to say, like, I'm getting a little more chemical on this side of the fork. Therefore, I should mm-hmm. go this way when I'm, I'm, I'm trailing a rat. Uh, and so then our question was, can humans do this? And it basically turns out the answer is probably no. Uh, very sadly, uh, you cannot probably tell where the bad smell of the room is by, by using, you know, offsetting your nostrils. Um, so then the question we had was then why do you have two nostrils? Why not one big giant awesome nostril? Um, and it turns out the best argument is essentially your, your nostril is this sort of, um, you're, 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 you have this mucus lined system uh, that uh, protects you from pathogens and other stuff, and it has to be kept moist uh, in order to do its job. And so the, you, you, you don't realize it, but you constantly have one nostril dominant, uh, quote unquote. You have one dominant nostril that has this engorged tissue. Uh, that's the term in the field, engorged uh um, in, in one nostril. So, so one, one side is essentially getting a break. Uh, and, um, you, you really notice this by the way, when you have a cold, you know, when, when, when one nostril is just not doing anything. Um, and, uh, uh, so, um, so what does this have to do with abuse to undergrads? Uh, so it, it turns out there's some weirdness that goes with this. There's some, uh, evidence we're, I would say pretty skeptical of that, 
when you force people to use their non-dominant nostril, they perform worse in all sorts of ways. Uh, and so, um, so they, they're apparently this was done to undergrads. There are these tests that do unilateral force. I think it's nostril breathing or nose breathing. Anyway, it's in the book um, where you, I guess, compel students to breathe through the wrong nostril and then make them <laughs> do stuff. Like I, I, I think it was like you know just like intelligence tests. And there was there's even some argument that it, there was some correlation with like schizophrenia, oh, wow. of, like using the wrong nostril. Yeah, like weird stuff. Um, I'm pretty skeptical of of any of it, but I, I just love the idea that. You know, someone was like, hey, we need undergrads for a test. And you're like, oh, I'm going to come in and take a test. And it was like, okay, breathe through the nostril you don't feel like breathing through and, like, answer math questions. <laughs> that's, what the, that's what they're good for, right? Yeah, breathe yeah, out of right. that nostril and now go get on that pogo stick we're sending you to the moon. <laughs> yeah. That's right, and we'll see what happens. Uh, yeah. You'll get course credit. Yeah. Zach, um, before we let you go, I, I do have to know, after all of this research for this book, and by the way, the amount of research and the amount of fact-checking that must have gone into this project was just tremendous Staggering, and, and yeah. really impressive to well, see thank you. It was, what it was you guys a have done. Yeah, I, I can only imagine. But uh, I, I'm curious, after putting this together, you know, what what about the future excites you the most? And then on mm-hmm. the flip side of that, what terrifies you the most now that you've you've you know dug into so much of this? Sure, um, I would say uh, the technology that. It's in some ways less sort of sexy, spacey than the other technologies, but is really exciting is what's called um, precision medicine. Uh, we, we have a chapter on this in the book, and the, and the basic idea is you just have a sort of stats approach to medicine. Um, so maybe some of your listeners have heard of all these blood tests now coming out that can detect cancer early, maybe heart attack early, all sorts of stuff. So the idea is maybe in, maybe in 30, 40 years there'll be a new system where essentially when you go to the doctor instead of um instead of the basic stuff they'll probably still do the basic stuff blood pressure and talking to your doctor etc are you exercising enough but they'll also take a blood test that will be run through a fancy computer and and will spit out a lot of results and what's exciting to that is is potentially it means you drastically drop healthcare costs a lot of healthcare costs have to do with unprevented stuff um discovering cancers late that sort of thing Mm -hmm. i'm not to mention you know a lot of like a lot of why, for instance, pancreatic cancer is dangerous is because you don't detect it early. Um, and so stuff like that, like subtle, hard to detect cancers, you could detect early. It would save a lot of money, but it would also obviously save a lot of, you know, horror, right. uh, a lot of badness in human life. Um, and so to me, that's that's really exciting, um, especially because it kind of comes at a time when, especially in the U.S., but also this is happening in other countries where healthcare costs are really getting high and it's not exactly clear how the system can say solvent over the, the long term. This could be a way out. Um, it might take us in the other direction in the short term. But in the long term, it, you know, you can imagine a paradigm where it's like Star Trek, where someone waves a little wand over you. More likely the wand is like poking you and taking tissue samples. But still, <laughs> um, uh, And it just tells you, hey, and this is this is apparently literally possible. It might be able to say, hey, you're headed for a heart attack. You have dying heart tissue. If this goes on for three more days, you're going to be here for a heart attack. And so instead of you know, having it in your car or at work or whatever and having to be rushed to the hospital, you come in early and they take care of it. Um, the, the amount of preventative medicine that could be done is, is amazing. Um, uh, so I'll, I'll just say that. I mean, I, I'm on a visceral level. I'm, 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 I suppose, more excited about like the space stuff. Um, but, but that's really, that's really sort of, I don't know if you've ever known someone who's, who's died of, of cancer or some sort of preventable illness, especially at a young age, it's, it's very sort of moving to think about yeah. being able to do those things. Certainly. Um, uh, in terms of scary, I would say uh, far and away the most scary one for me is we do a chapter on brain-computer interfaces, which, again, is what it sounds like. Uh, and uh, what scares me a little uh, – so let me give you a scenario we wrote about that was proposed as a positive. 
which is something like this. Suppose you're on the job uh, and you lapse in focus. Well, that's bad for your job, uh, but suppose you have a brain computer interface. It detects that you're not focusing and does something. Maybe it tells your boss, Bob isn't focusing. <laughs> Maybe it just gives you a little something, a little, uh, little shock uh, or a dose of chemical or something, and then you focus again. Now, of course, that, that sounds instantly dystopian the way I'm describing it. There is a plausible good version, which is something like if you're, you know, you, you don't want that on the job, but you might want the guy piloting your plane uh, <laughs> to do that. Uh, you might want a surgeon to do that. Right. Um, there are situations where it's reasonable. Um, but, but the scary thing is once the cat's out of the bag, like once this is a possible thing, um, then there's a sort of race to the bottom or race to the cyborg, however you want to say it. Uh, <laughs> just something like, um, so I don't know, I assume y'all are either in academia or cross swords with it. Um, you know, you're, you're familiar with that world. You may not know that on surveys, something like a fifth to a quarter of elite American researchers will admit to using mind enhancing drugs. Uh, and I don't mean like they're dropping acid. I mean like they're taking Adderall or modafinil or what have mm-hmm. you to, to, you know, or, or, or illegal stuff like uh, cocaine or, or what have you, maybe crack. I don't know. Um, to, to be able to put out more papers, uh, you know, sleep less, et cetera. I think drugs are sort of morally neutral, but there is an externality problem, which is if the top researchers are all on crack, uh, and presuming crack actually helps, by the way, the, 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 these are somewhat open <laughs> questions. Uh, but but I, I think it's probably plausible that it does, especially if you're like a postdoc or something, you have a, a narrow time band to do a lot of work. There's an externality, which is it means the people who aren't willing to do this stuff um, are put in a bad position. Uh, and so we kind of, I feel like most of us don't care if it's happening with researchers because there's an extent to which you're like, well, I get more science. Uh, so whatever, uh, I don't care that much. And also anyway, they're already elite people. So whatever, uh, but you can imagine a situation where this goes all the way down. Like, you know, the, the, the worker who is willing to, uh, release their data to an employer, um, and allow the employer to manipulate that data is, is, is more employable. Um, so do we get into a situation where everyone has to be wearing one of these and publicly sharing their data or at least not publicly, maybe, but sharing it with employers or, or what have you, there's a really ominous scenario where, where we're all, you know, being forced to become cyborgs, whether we want to or not, uh, you know, over over the next hundred years, say not not anytime soon. Yeah, yeah. Well, to make sure that we finish on a positive note, maybe we should just <laughs> we should just repeat the term pogo stick to space, right? <laughs> let's just let's just maybe close with that. What do you think? Yeah, Mega? I think so. <laughs> po- pogo stick to space. I should have done the precision medicine thing second. No, <laughs> we we asked you in the wrong order. But this this book, I know we've already said it. It is so fascinating and so fun to read. I hope all of our listeners will check it out. It's called Soonish, 10 Emerging Technologies That'll Improve and or Ruin Everything. (laughs) But Zach, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. That's it for today's show. But be sure to check out Kelly and Zach Wienersmith's new book, Soonish, which is on shelves everywhere right now. And if you like the program or just have anything to add, remember, you can always hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. You can email us parttimegenius at howstuffworks.com. Or hit us up on our 24-7 fact hotline. That's 1-844-PT-GENIUS. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. 
Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. <laughs> Jerry Rowland does the exact producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eve Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Did we, did we forget Jason? Jason who? the question diamonds direct has an offer you can't miss this month only buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at two thousand dollars imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once no one provides education selection and value like diamonds direct your chance to get a free tennis bracelet from your friends at diamonds direct won't last long details at diamondsdirect.com your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Your new home journey starts at Fisher Homes, where everything is red, white, and new. Explore exclusive summer savings and start your journey by selecting your ideal home site and your dream community. Choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans and bring your style to life at the Lifestyle Design Center. Are you looking for a quick move-in ready home instead? Fisher Homes has options for those too. Fill out a form to connect with a new home advisor at fisherhomes.com to get started today before the sun sets on summer savings.